Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. What's up, church? How are we? Good. Good. Hey, good to be with you all this morning. We are um, continuing a series that we kicked off last week that we are just calling Summer in the Psalms. And so what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks is walking through some of our favorite psalms, some of the most famous psalms in all of Scripture. And so I really just want to remind you, I thought Caden did just an awesome job kicking this series off for us last week. Um, He he really struggled first service to remember all the announcements. And I was like, bro, you remembered half the book of psalms. You can do this with the announcements, dude. There's like three of them. We've got this. So um, we'll be in this series all summer long. And our encouragement and our hope is that we as a church community would, would spend time marinating in the Psalms this summer. And so if you could rearrange your schedule or find time in your schedule already, 10, 15 minutes every day reading through the Psalms. I'd encourage you, maybe you're reading several Psalms in a day just in that time. Maybe you're reading one at a time very slowly. There are so many different ways you can go about it. My encouragement would just be get into it and get involved. Uh, And so hopefully you were doing that. This week, um, I'm going to be unpacking Psalm 19. And so if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open that up to Psalm 19. Uh, C.S. Lewis comments on Psalm 19 saying, uh, the great author, right? Line, the witch in the wardrobe. C.S. Lewis says that uh, Psalm 19 is the most beautiful psalm in all of the Psalter. In fact, the most beautiful lyric in all the world. So no pressure today, right? That's like, that's, that's tall orders for sure today. I, I remember a few weeks back, um, Katie and I and Taylor all went up to Fort Collins to, to hear uh, some counselor's perspective on how to best pastor Gen Z. So Gen Z, some of the younger kids in the room maybe today, some of you who are like, who are like 25 and under, probably even a little older than that, but right around that wheelhouse. What marks Generation Z is you, you have grown up in a world where you did not know what the internet is. Like you, you, it is a foreign concept for you to think about what not having access to the entire world in the palm of your hand means. That's what marks your generation. And what we were talking about in that time with this counselor uh, was there is a distinction happening now that psychologists are calling awe deprivation. And so what's happening in our modern culture is we are, we are lacking the common experience of awe as a people. Part of the reason for that they're referencing is because there is nothing that you cannot see in the internet in a matter of minutes that you used to maybe have to drive to. Maybe you used to, have, you used to hear like legends and stories about this place that once existed. And now there's some influencer that just sold their whole uh, like livelihood. And now they're just bought some motorhome. They're just traveling around the world looking at all the places that you once dreamed about visiting. And you just have access to all these images and all these things and, and everything feels normal now because we can see all the extraordinary in a moment's notice. Everything that was once extraordinary now feels common because it's just on our newsfeed over and over again. We're lacking awe as a people. This feeling, this feeling of like, oh my gosh, this, like I am small, that is so big. This kind of like understanding or appreciation that there's way more out there than I could possibly wrap my head around. Awe. It's this question I want to ask today is, are you losing your sense of awe in the life you're living today? When was the last time you felt awe? See, because Katie and I, after going through that class, after sitting through that, having some good takeaways from that, um, Katie got this idea that as we were approaching this trip to Glacier National Park that we just took a couple weeks ago, never been up to Montana, me personally at least, never had seen Glacier National Park, and we, we road tripped all 13 of them hours up there, all right? It was a long drive nearly into Canada, okay? That's how far Glacier was. Katie got this idea where she's like, okay, I don't want my kids to be awe-deprived. 
Nobody gets to Google anything about Glacier until we get there. Nobody gets to look at it. And so I'll tell you what, I was first in line of the morons in the front seat of our car going like, wow, look at that. Look at that mountain. Look at that lake. You see the size of that river. And it's just like over and over again. I just was taken aback by the majesty of Montana. Like it really is big sky country for a reason up there. Like you're just like, this is different. I don't know how it's different. I'm not sure if the curvature of the earth is different somehow up here, but like there's a lot of sky and there's just a lot of space. Anyone who's been in Montana, you can attest. This is true. You're just like, oh my gosh, the way up, we drove through a lot of farm country, which is like beautiful in its own right. Then coming home, uh, we, we drove through all the mountains and all the different things to see that way. And it was just like, wow, this is beautiful. And I felt awestruck by the beauty of these glacier mountains, of the, of the color of the rivers. You know, they're like Arctic frost Gatorade is the best description I have of these rivers. They're like a blue, a green. I can't really describe it, you know? They're not like the rivers here and they're bigger and they're wider and the water seems colder and the mountains seem big. It just, maybe it was kind of romanticized in my mind, but I was in awe of the world that we're living in. I, I like, I just wonder if we as a people are, are losing our collective experience of awe. I think this feeling, if we can kind of put the definition to awe up on the screen. Awe is a feeling of reverential respect mixed with fear and wonder. So it makes sense, doesn't it? You've had these moments in your life where you've stood in awe of something. You've had this reverential respect as in, I don't, I don't understand all of it, but I, I respect what's happening in front of me right now. And it, it, it incites in us this kind of mysterious wonder that really kind of makes us feel afraid if we're honest. And so it's no wonder that we don't like to experience awe in the culture we're living because we are so inwardly turned on ourselves, so focused on ourselves we're so uh, overstimulated by the world around us that nothing seems that novel anymore. And we're also just not a, we're not a people that really like to feel afraid. Like, I'll, I'll tell you this. I remember camping as a kid. Nobody, nobody camps and gets away from all the light pollution, gets around a campfire with some friends, looks up and sees what the stars actually look like all the time. We just can't see them all the time because of light pollution. And you don't just stand there and look up and go, wow, I am awesome. I'm an amazing person. You don't think that. What do you do? You think like, oh my gosh, I'm incredibly small. Like I'm a little afraid of space. I'm for sure afraid of going like underwater now at this point after this week, right? Uh, that's, that's, I'm, I'm afraid of that. I'm afraid of going up. Like just keep me on the ground, please. You know? Anyone else feel this way? Yes. Oh, I, like there's been a couple moments in my life where I've been awestruck. There was a high school basketball tournament we were in. Uh, it was like summer of my junior year. And we go up to Wyoming to play in this basketball tournament. And the way that it would work is there'd be several teams playing all at once in an open field house. And we heard of this guy, uh, his name was James Johnson. He played for Cheyenne East. And so we go over there to watch this game. They're playing, of course, Thompson Valley, which was just great. And the crosstown rival playing this amazing college recruit basketball player. And I remember watching James like catch the ball at half court. He took a few dribbles to his left to about the three-point line took this hard step in towards the paint, turned around, jumped up, and just jammed it on like three of the Thompson Valley players. And I was just like, yes! Right, this is a crosstown rivals just getting dunked on like that. And at the same time, you know what I felt? Reverential respect. I do not want to play that guy next. Please, I'm like the tallest guy on our team. He weighs like 100 pounds more than me, and I'm not interested in doing that today. You know? That's what it would feel like. I remember one time sitting on the coast in Mexico, Kate and I were having this evening where we had gone for a walk on the beach. We just had dinner, watching the sunset. It should have been this like beautifully romantic moment. And I remember thinking to myself, 
man, what if a rogue wave just came right now and just knocked us out? <laughs> you guys ever feel that way when you're by the ocean? The ocean's powerful. It doesn't care about you. That rogue waves, like they happen, you know? That's the thing. That's a, and I just go like, oh man, I am powerless against this force, this body of water in front of me. Ah, when was the last time you felt it? When was the last time you got kind of like pressed into that invitation of wonder that goes beyond yourself? Ah, I was researching awe deprivation just after we had learned about it in that class and realizing that um, a lot of things, and they maybe even just link depression itself and a lot of times can be related to a lack of awe in our human experience. And there's no wonder we experience a lack of awe. Sometimes there, there is a monotony to life that has to get done. You're familiar with this. You gotta do laundry. I'm not sure there's a lot of awe-inspiring things happening when you're just folding clothes and putting them away only for your kid. You might be in awe of how much laundry your kids go through in a week. That might be true. You got to pay your bills. You might be in awe of where your money's going. But like for the most part, a lot of the day-to-day dishes and routines of life don't inspire a lot of awe. But what psychologists will say is that in a world full of narcissism and in a, a world full of isolation and stinginess, awe is actually this positive emotion that they have proven now makes you feel more connected to others around you because you realize there's something bigger out there than just yourself. Uh, also invites us to be more connected, but it also invites us to be more generous. The New York Times published this article on why we experience awe. And in it, what they were publishing on was this study they did where they, they gave 1,500 people this, this invitation to participate in this study of like how much awe you experience in your daily life. So they filled out this questionnaire, they answered all these questions, and they found as they gave all 1,500 of those applicants 10 lottery tickets each, those who reported that they experienced more awe were 40% more likely to share their winnings with other people in that group. Found that interesting. The other thing they studied was they, they sent these people doing this research study on Cal Berkeley's campus. Apparently on Cal Berkeley's campus, there are these over 200 foot tall eucalyptus trees all in this grove. And apparently it's just this incredible sight to behold. And so they would send these people that they were studying down and then they would stage an accident, a minor accident, Somebody walks by and, and drops a bunch of things out of their hands. They spill some pens or something like that. And they noted that those who had more time to understand and appreciate this grove of eucalyptus trees were more likely to then turn and be generous with their time to help somebody pick up the mess that had been just been made in front of them. So awe, in this unique way, psychologists study it and they say it makes us more generous as people. It makes us feel more connected. And if you're feeling awe-deprived in your life, what they will offer for you to turn to four different places. They'll say you can turn to architecture. Go see architecture. Go take in the beauty of a building. Go appreciate what it must have taken to build that thing. If you don't appreciate how much it takes to build things, just try this this summer sometime. Try building a chair, one chair that you can sit on. And then go look at a building and imagine how that happened. <laughs> they said, look at art. Look at art. Again, I would say just... Take a blank sheet of paper, do your best, and then go look at an actual art exhibit, like in a museum, and appreciate the difference. You will be in awe of your lack of skills, and you'll be in awe of somebody else's presence of skills. Is this true? They said you can turn to architecture, you can turn to art, you can turn to music, you can turn to music. You can actually take in and listen to the sounds. I, I know that a week and a half, it's going to be 4th of July, Right? You're tracking with me. You guys are, you guys are freedom-loving people as well. You'll be celebrating the 4th of July somewhere. At some point on the 4th of July, I will be unapologetically singing Miley Cyrus's Party in the USA at the top of my lungs. 
I just will. You can find me, you can hear me probably at some point. That is different kind of music though than when I sit down and actually listen to like a movie score from Interstellar by Hans Zimmer. And those are different. Like find a, find a composer, listen to a symphony and appreciate the different pieces that are there. There is a difference between active and passive participation in the elements of the world around you. Architecture, art, music. The fourth place they would reference that you can go to to have this awe sort of stimulated in your life would be nature. Get out away from the city lights. Go see a sunrise. Go look at a mountain. There are good, for goodness sakes, we live in Colorado. This is not an ugly state, you know? Go, psychologists would say get into nature. What we as Christians would then internalize that as is get yourself out into God's creation. Get into the world around you and appreciate what God has done. Psalm 19, if you turn there, open it up. We're going to start in verse one. Psalm 19, David we don't know when this was written in his life or why he wrote it, but he's clearly enraptured in awe. His attention, as I've read through a commentary, it goes up. He looks up and he sees the heavens above him. He looks down and he sees the word in front of him and he's in awe of God's word. And then he forces him, after he's looked up and he's looked down, it forces him to then look within and to evaluate his own heart. And that's what awe does for us this morning. And so open it up with me. If you have your Bible with you, Psalm 19, starting in verse 1. You can follow along in the YouVersion app if you have your Bible on your phone. But I've got it here. It'll be on the screens. David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, in the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So David, I just got to imagine, it. before David was the king of Israel, he was a shepherd boy who spent a lot of time on a hillside in the middle of nowhere. I can only imagine, I've been away from light a little far enough, maybe with like, you know, we got all of Canada's smoke that we're trying to deal with as we look up into the sky. Like David probably didn't have that going in his day. I can only imagine what the stars would look like in the ancient Near East on the hillside when he was guarding flocks of sheep. So he's like the expanse of everything above me. So when he opens up in verse one, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Don't think of that word heavens as the, the, the terrible picture that so many Americans live with for heaven, where it's kind of like you and me chilling on some cloud and, and we have some sort of harp apparatus in front of us and we've got this halo on our head, we've sprouted little white wings. And like, first of all, it's a really bad picture of heaven, but that's also not the word that David is using here. He's using this word heaven as in the expanse of everything above you. It includes the weather, the clouds, the, the way they look on a sunrise and a sunset. He's, he's talking about, yes, our solar system, the way that the sun and the moon go about their, their track in the sky. And he's talking about then the universe itself. It just, it never fails to blow my mind that we are, we are existing because of one sun in a galaxy of probably like a quarter of a million to half a million different stars, Right? There's that many other stars in our galaxy. And then scientists have determined there's somewhere around a quarter of a billion other galaxies that they've discovered. You just try to do that math in your head for like 10 seconds and tell me you don't have a headache. And we just look up and we just go, oh my gosh. And we marvel at just what's been made. 
And the worst thing that you could do is just let all of your awe, let all of your wonder terminate on what's been created. Like if you just go, oh my gosh, this, this tr- grove of trees, this set of mountains, these skies above me, they're glorious, they're amazing. No, it's not what David does. What David first says, he says, the heavens declare something as in they are, the creation itself is, is pointing us somewhere. They're declaring the glory of God and they're proclaiming his handiwork, literally the work of his fingers. So when I look and I see the stars on some night, like there is a reason that country songs are about me sitting here, drinking beer, talking God, amen. Because it just sort of happens when you're on a campfire. You're looking at all these stars and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so small. And as we do that, what, what, what David is inviting us to do is he's saying, let that roll then past just the creation onto the creator. The heavens declare your glory, God. And, and everything is proclaiming the work of your fingertips. And, and so I get to sit there and go, there is a being somewhere who just opened his mouth and spoke and he put all of this into motion. It all just fell out because he said so. That's, I'm sorry, there's a lot of things to get passed off as awesome. Tacos, your lunch, a nap this afternoon. God is awesome, filled with awe. Just so good, get lost in the wonder of what he's made and who he is, right? And so as we look, we cannot fail to recognize and respect what's been created while giving our appreciation towards the creator. David goes on to say after he's, he's, he's taking in the expanse of everything, you got to keep in mind, this is poetry. So he goes on to say in verse five, or I'm sorry, verse four, he says, the voice goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, in the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun. It's like he's, he's made a tabernacle. He's made a place for the sun to be. He's given it its place and it comes out. It rises in the morning like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. What he's trying to say there is like, the sun just doesn't rise with kind of a ho-hum sort of attitude. Like a bridegroom heading to his wedding chamber. You know, he, he come, the sun comes up in the morning. It's like, hello, beautiful. It's excited in the morning. You've been up recently, early enough to catch a sunrise. There's glory in that sunrise. It says it goes across its track as he's ordained it to. It goes like a strong man. It runs its course with joy. God has set the sun in motion to go a certain way, rising from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from the sun's heat. Listen, light travels at 186,000 miles every second. That means by the time like I've finished with this thought, it's already gone a million miles. It takes light eight minutes and 20 seconds to get from the sun to the earth. And so there's, there's just this gigantic ball of fire that rises up in the morning, starts to warm everything up. It goes and it sets. And, and we have the audacity to say, man, I really just did heat up quicker than I wanted it to. This rain was nice. I miss it, you know? It's like, are we kidding? Isn't it just incredible that there even is a sun that produces this heat that's at the exact right distance away from the earth to keep us not too hot, not too cold, but just right, Goldilocks style, you know? It's incredible. David is, David's in awe of creation. He looks up and he takes it all in. And this is what it says in, in the book of Romans. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God in that it has been made plain to everyone on earth because God has shown him his glory for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. What Paul is writing on here is he's saying, 
everyone gets to know who God is because of what God has made. Nobody is without excuse for seeing God because his power and his might are evident in the creation that he's put us in. Everyone, every one of us get to take something in at some point and go, that is, that is amazing. There's no way this is just an accident. God made this. You look at a sunset over Lake Loveland and you just go, incredible. It's beautiful. It's awe-striking, isn't it? The way we take it in. David, as he looks up first, he's in awe of the heavens, which forces him then to look down. He looks down then at the book. He looks down at the law. And so here's how he goes in now. Charles Spurgeon, when he's commenting on Psalm 19, he says, David has clearly been taught by God's two great books, nature and the word. And I just love that. This is what he's putting next to each other. David looks up and he looks down. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even more than fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. David goes into this like rhythmic poem and you can just, can't you feel as you read it, his awe for the word of God, for the laws of God, for the way that God has ordained the universe to work. I don't want to spend too much time here, but each of these words is distinct. I know it feels repetitive. You're kind of like, okay, law, testimony, precepts, commandments, aren't those all kind of the same thing? Yeah, they're all very similar. The law of God is referring to the instruction that God is giving for life and for human behavior. God has ordered the universe to work in a certain way. And so he gives instruction then on how we are to carry out that working. He says, okay, that is the law of God. And that law is perfect and it revives our soul. In other words, it is good for you to follow after the commandments of God, the laws of God. It goes on to say, the testimony of the Lord is sure, as in the word of the Lord is sure. What he has spoken, you can guarantee. What he has spoken, you can be sure of. And as we are familiar with God, what God has said, namely what he has revealed in scripture, that is what makes wise the simple. The simple would just be like the, the person who doesn't understand anything. If you want to start putting together more understanding of the way the universe works, of the way your life is meant to work, you have to understand what God has said about you. It says the precepts, the precepts of the Lord are right. What he's saying when he says precepts, this is a word that only appears in the Psalms. It appears several different times throughout the Psalms and it refers to God's covenant. As in the precepts, God has entered into a covenant relationship. He has turned, faced his people and said, these are my people. And he's chosen them and he's entered into this contract, this covenant with them. And so it says the precepts of the Lord are right, which rejoicing the heart, the fact that God has chosen you, that he's entered into a relationship with you, a covenant with you, that should make us glad. That should cause rejoicing, worship to spill out of our hearts. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The commandment, anything that God has ordained. So not just things that are caught in scripture, but things that God has willed and decreed that would happen. They're pure. It enlightens our eyes. It helps us to understand. It helps us to truly see. All of these things, the law, the testimony, precepts, commandments, fear, the rules of the Lord, all of these are synonymous with the revelation of God. The, who God has revealed himself to be. The character in which that God has chosen to show us who he really is. 
this, this is what David's getting at. Is like God has revealed himself in his scripture. He's revealed himself throughout history to be a certain kind of person. He's revealing his character and he's pure and he's right and he lifts us up and he makes us wise and all of these different things. And what is happening is as you understand, as David is taking in the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, the perfection of God, he now starts to go internal, which we all should. Because over and over in scripture, when we see people who have an actual encounter with the Lord, you know, Isaiah, for example, we have Isaiah uh, chapter six. Can we throw that up there? Isaiah has this encounter with the throne room of God and says, woe is me for I am lost as in I should not be here. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here's what happens to people who encounter the throne room of God. They don't just walk into that space and go again. I am awesome. Take me in Lord. Finally, I'm here. I've arrived. You put me right where you meant for me to be. No, but rather what is the response of John in revelation? What is the response of Ezekiel? What is the response of Isaiah falling on the ground? Woe is me. I shouldn't be here. Don't destroy me. I don't belong. This isn't the right spot for me. God, you are holy. You are perfect. Look at like, like just picturing God on his throne must be one of the most intimidating, reverent, fearful, awe-filled things we can possibly think of. And it doesn't make us go, man, my life is pretty awesome. It makes us go, I, I do not deserve this. I shouldn't be here. God, you're so awesome. You're so awesome. It says in Proverbs 9, that the one who fears the Lord the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of starting to piece together all of these different aspects of who God is. We can't try to, we can't try to make God this unfearful being. He is holy. He is just. He is perfect. And that should make us a little bit afraid. That should make us pause for just a second. The righteousness of God, what it should do in us is incite a wonderful fear in our imperfect souls. It should. It should make us go, wait a second, I don't, I don't belong in this moment right now. God is so awesome, so perfect. And, and you and I both know what we did this last week or what we didn't do this last week or what we should have done this last week. And it makes us go, okay, wait, hold on. There, there is a gap here between who God is and who I am. Right, but the, the beautiful piece of how this Psalm moves is as David has looked up and he's seen the expanse of the heavens and as he's now looked down, and he's seeing the righteousness and perfection of God in the word. And he has this awe for the word of God. He starts to turn inward. And he's, well, hold on, before we go there. I love that he says, more to be desired are they than gold, the commandments of God, the laws of God, the precepts of God, even much fine gold. I can understand that. Like I can understand how he's like, man, this, the word of God, the rules of God, that's all better than having all the wealth you could ever imagine. And then he says, even more so, they're, they're sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb, which I, if I could be honest with you, it just gives me anxiety. Like I, I thought, think of a honeycomb like dripping down my face and I just don't like being sticky, you know? So, but what, what David's saying there is it's like, even, even in having all of my needs met, I still have this, this honey, this sweetness. There is this beauty to it that goes above and beyond what God has already provided for me. And he says, moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Verse 12, he says, who can discern his errors? He says, declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Don't let sin rule over me. 
Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock, my redeemer. So David, as he has this encounter with this awesome God, and he sees how perfect and right, now he starts to turn in. He says, God, evaluate me. Don't let there be any sin that I don't know about in my life. Don't let there be any sin that has dominion or control over me. I want, I want to be, belong to you and you alone, God. I, I'm wholly submitted to you. Don't let sin have some part of my heart. Don't let there be some sort of presumptuous sin in my life. If there's something that I got going on, please reveal it to me because I don't want there to be anything that I don't have in front of you. And here's the crazy thing is that God knows all the sin that's going in your life. God knows that you should be set, like we don't have any business being in this room worshiping him. And yet God has chosen to be our redeemer. That's where he ends this very last line. He says, oh Lord, my rock, my redeemer. Here's the beauty of the Christian story is that even though we serve this powerful being that spoke and put all the stars in its place, in their place, and even though he's perfectly pure as revealed in his word, and the revelation of him is just consistently full of integrity that he is who he is, and you and I, and we know we consistently let him down, David turns at the end of that and he says, oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, that same God who's all of those other things that are so awesome and mighty is the same God that loves you deeply. And he's moved towards you in the midst of your mistakes. Uh, The fact that he uses the word redeemer here is so beautiful to me because it's not just that God is our forgiver. He is that. He is our forgiver. But if he was only a forgiver, he would say, hey, you've done all these bad things, right? And you have this track record of sin in your life. All of those, by the way, are, are worthy of death, the punishment of death. And so here, tell you what, I'm your forgiver though. So I forgive you of all that. But if he was only our forgiver, then what he would say is, I forgive you of your sins. Now you better straighten up and figure it out from here on out. And listen, that should be, we should have enough appreciation for that grace for us to be forgiven of our past sins that we go, okay, God, thank you for forgiving me of my past. I'm going to live on the up and up from here on out. What's the problem though? Is we can't. I bet you you've fallen into a mistake this week that you swore weeks ago you would never enter into again in your life. And so it's not just that he's our forgiver. He has forgiven us. It's not just that he's kind. It'd be great if God was kind, but a God that's kind would turn a blind eye to the consequence of the sin that happened. No, he's God, our redeemer. As in Jesus came, he entered into this creation as the God-man, paid the cost for your and I's sin, got up on that cross, died in our place so that you and I could be brought back into right standing with God, not just neutral with him. It's not just that our spiritual bank account went from being in this huge massive debt to now we're even because of what Jesus did. No, now we're credited as sons and daughters of our redeemer, our rock, our God, whom we trust. This is, this is the beauty of what David does is he's actually in perpetual awe of the fact that he's not perfect, but God is. And he's so powerful to make all of creation. And he's chosen to redeem my life. And he's chosen to redeem your life as well. We should, as believers, live in a perpetual awe. That good news, that gospel, the story that I just recited for you, is enough for us to live in perpetual awe of who Jesus is and what he's done. So yeah, take psychology's advice. If you feel like you've got odd deprivation in your life, go listen to some good music. Get in front of some good art. Study some architecture. Get out in the world. I actually think it would be a really good move for you to some night get yourself far away from this thing, leave it behind, get in front of the starry night sky and just look up for a little bit. But again, that's meant to lead you 
It's only an invitation. Studying creation is not just to observe the beauty of nature. It's to observe and study and appreciate the creator. As we evaluate the creator, we're driven to learn more about him in his word. As we learn more about him in his word, it reveals the shortcomings in our own life. And as we're reminded of the shortcomings in our life, you're also reminded of the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the love of God, that he has chosen to redeem you. And that promise is really sealed in what we're going to do at the end of service today, which is communion. We're going to receive communion now. And so if you don't have the elements, if you missed them on the way and go ahead and grab some, there'll be some people who walk some in, maybe. I kind of sprung it on them there out of nowhere. So they're running and grabbing them right now. But if you, if you need communion elements, just raise your hand. I, I just, I felt so strongly today that before we receive communion, I want to give an invitation for some of you to actually begin a relationship with Jesus right now, today. Maybe you haven't, you haven't treated God as awesome as he is. Maybe he's been like a little sidecar of your life, but you haven't let him stir up awe for your own personal salvation. Now, God has a plan for you. God has a story for you. And so we, all, we say this every week. I want to make it clear. If you're just a guest with us today, you're visiting for the first time, you're welcome to participate in communion with us. But what we always say is, man, but if you're not in a relationship with Jesus, then this moment isn't for you yet. But I want to, I want to make today, maybe it's the first time you receive communion because it's the first time you've given your life to Jesus. And to do that very simply, I'm just going to lead you in a prayer for a moment. And I'm going to lead all of us into a prayer. And then we're going to enter into a time of communion together. So if you would, would you, every, all around the room, would you just bow your heads, close your eyes. Maybe, maybe you're just the one person that God brought into this room today to say, look, look up, get your eyes up off your own life, off your own self, and look beyond that into this world that he has made. Consider the stars, how he set them in their place. Consider his word, how he's chosen to reveal himself to us in a way that we can understand him. And maybe for the first time today, there's somebody in here who just wants to say, God, you could pray a prayer just like this. God, I, I want to surrender my life to you. I know that I've sinned. I know that I've made mistakes. I know that I've fallen short of the standard that you've asked for. And so I, I, I beg you to have the blood of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus credited to my account. If you come before him in faith and if you ask for that, and if you lay your life down and you go, God, I surrender myself to you. In other words, I, I lay the, the will and the, the strength of me driving my own outcomes in my life, I just give that to you right now. I say, you're in charge. I want to follow after you. Make your law seem righteous in my heart. Make your precepts and your commandments, make them help me see that they're good. And as you surrender in faith, just as Jesus was raised to the dead, as you're laying your life down, I believe that he'll be faithful to raise you up into new life as well. So God, we give ourselves to you. We trust you. Even in this moment of communion, we do this, we do this a couple times a month and I pray against this being some rote activity for the church people in the room. Rather, I ask that it would be an awe-filled participation in your sacrifice on our behalf. Would we stand in awe of you today? Would we be completely overwhelmed by your goodness and your kindness and your mercy towards us that you desired to be in relationship with us so much that you were willing to die on our behalf? So God, we trust you. We yield to you. We love you. We thank you for this sacrament that we get to participate in. God, we just ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, would we be a people who are marked by awe for you? God, I just think about summers in Colorado. There's a lot of opportunity 
to get in front of some really beautiful things if we're just willing to maybe set a screen down, maybe set an alarm early, keep the kids up too late some night. There's a lot of different beautiful things that we can catch. Even though this world is dark and scary at times, your beauty is evident all over. So help us walk with a posture that's eager to encounter your beauty and get swept up into this thing called awe. I just pray as we go about our week, would you help break up the day-to-day monotony? The Monday morning is still gonna come. Not a lot of people in this room are in a spot where they can just go for a hike tomorrow. They gotta be at work. And so would you help all of us in our day-to-day routines, help us find the little things in life that can cause us to be stirred towards gratitude and worship for you. Jesus, we love you. And I pray that we'd be a people who are marked with a reverential respect mixed with some fear and wonder for who you are and what you've done specifically in our lives and more generally in the world that we get to inhabit. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. 